Good morning again. Glad to be with you. I'm not going to ask you if you got your sleep. I already know many of you didn't. But uh, we can try to stay awake one more morning. Well, God bless you all for coming out. It's always encouraging to me to speak to young people. I've told young people already, there's nothing inspires me more to go on with the Lord than young people who are on fire for the Lord. And there's almost nothing discourages me more than young people who are cold and indifferent. Because you really play an important role in the church. We say you are the future church. You are the current church as well. The church of today. So thank you for all who came. There's a couple people here who were in Georgia a month ago when I preached this same series in Georgia. And I was feeling kind of like, oh, I wish I had something different for them. But they're hearing it again. And then one of them told me yesterday that, well, you know, hearing it the second time helps it to click a little more. And I said, yeah, you still have 18 times to go because it takes about 20 times of hearing something for it to really become established in someone's mind. So sorry if uh, you've heard some of these things before. But I'm going to, with that, very, very briefly recap the covenants, Abraham, just very briefly, because that's the framework through which we (coughs) understand Psalms and also the rest of the Bible. Remember the Abrahamic covenant was, there was a covenant, there was a promise made (coughs) to Eve that her descendant would crush the head of Satan, his authority. His authority over mankind would be broken through Eve's descendant, her seed, which was the Messiah. Then there was a promise made to Abraham that it would be through his seed that all the families of the earth would be blessed, meaning they would experience the salvation of this descendant. So this descendant was going to come through Abraham. And God made the promise to Abraham that it will happen as surely as God's own existence in Genesis 15 when that covenant was signed. But it was conditioned on Abraham being righteous. Abraham, if you are righteous, I'll fulfill this, but I will fulfill it or I cease to exist. And so Abraham was not always righteous. The very next chapter, he goes into Hagar and Ishmael is born and he attempts to fulfill this this promise with the (coughs) power of the flesh. And you know, it was rejected. So what ended up happening was the reason that covenant could be both certain and conditioned on Abraham's righteousness was because God imputed that righteousness to Abraham. We read about it. Abraham believed God. It was imputed to him for righteousness. So God's righteousness became Abraham's righteousness through faith. And thus Abraham met the conditions of being righteous and God could meet his end that he was assured to meet as his own existence. So we said that any time a covenant in the Bible is both conditional and certain, God himself will step in to meet those conditions. Then we talked about the Mosaic covenant made with uh, the children of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. And that was God's offer to Israel. Okay, Israel, live righteously and I'll fulfill and you'll live. You'll experience the salvation that I promised through Abraham. 
And as we read the scripture yesterday, he said that he took the Abrahamic covenant, the promise he made, the covenant he made with Abraham, and wrote it as a law to Israel. So the law to Israel was their opportunity to live a righteous life in order to bring the promises made to Abraham to fruition. Well, we know that what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, the flesh, their flesh, their hearts that were not changed were too weak to keep this, so they failed the conditions. And the Mosaic Covenant was conditional, conditioned on Israel's righteousness, but it was not certain. God never said it's certain. God never swore by his own existence or holiness to fulfill it. So when Israel broke their end of the covenant by not perfectly keeping that law, they could find pardon and salvation by grace through faith, using the sacrificial system to look forward to Christ, though, the, though that was not always clear to them. They still, it was grace, uh, by grace through faith that salvation was found for them. But when they broke that law, God sent them into captivity under the Assyrians and the Babylonians. 120 years later, the Assyrians took the northern kingdom of Israel captive. 120 years later, the Babylonians took the southern kingdom of Judah captive. And sometime later, Darius the Mede came in and took those captives under his control. And that's when the book of Daniel was written, was post-captivity, their exilic condition. So anyway, the curse that came about, so, so God broke off the covenant he made with Abraham, not with Abraham, which he wasn't going to do, with Moses, Israel through Moses, broke that off. And the sure mercies of David, the Davidic covenant, is when God promised David, David, I will fulfill all these promises through your seed. But there's one condition. You've got to be a righteous king sitting on the throne. But I swear by my holiness I will not lie to David. I will not alter the thing that has gone out of my mouth. Your throne, David, will endure forever. So it was as sure as God's holiness that, the, uh, that David's throne and these promises would be fulfilled through David's throne. But it was conditioned on the righteous king sitting on that throne. Was David righteous? Wasn't very righteous what he did many times throughout life. But what happened? He had a descendant named Christ who stepped on the throne and met every condition. And once again, we find God himself stepping in to meet the conditions so that the promise could be sure. That's recap. Now, what we see going on in the book of Psalms is Israel failing to keep the Mosaic covenant and thinking that God's promises, the fulfillment of the promises, depended on them keeping it but they didn't keep it, so they were in captivity, and the promises were disannulled, or so they thought. And they're singing these songs, Lord, what happened with the covenant? You've promised by your holiness, I will not go back on it. Yet here we are, without a nation, without a king. What happened? And God himself stepped in later in the book of Psalms, as we'll see today, and redeemed them. But the Mosaic covenant and Israel's attempt... At keeping that covenant, let me explain a verse to you that is so often misunderstood. In the book of Isaiah, it says, all our own righteousnesses are as filthy rags before God. That verse is so misinterpreted. There are some people who are reacting to easy believism who deny 
the imputed righteousness of Christ, who will say, here's what that means. That means that Israel had fallen so low and was committing so many sins, they did nothing good, therefore the best of what they did was still filthy. That's not what that verse is saying. Then there are other people who say that everything we do, even as Christians, is nothing but filthy rags before God. That's not what that verse is saying either. That verse actually uses graphic imagery in it, in the Hebrew. It says all our own righteousnesses are as menstrual rags. That's literally what the Hebrew says. What is it saying? It's saying just as when a woman tries to produce life on her own, it is rejected. So also when mankind and Israel tries to produce life without the seed of God in them, without the empowering, life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, it's dead, lifeless, and must be rejected because it's nothing but dead religion. So if we do have the Holy Spirit within our lives and we are empowered by him and he is producing righteousness in a real way, his works through us, not our own, that's not filthy rags. That's what we were created for in Christ Jesus. The problem with Israel under the Mosaic Covenant was just that. They had no empowering life within them, no seed of God within them. And they were just these empty human beings without a heart made right with God, trying to uh, creating religious exercises, trying to keep the Ten Commandments the best they could, but without life. And God just said, that's no baby, reject it. That's what that verse is saying. So that's what was happening with Israel. Now let's turn to the book of Psalms. I gave you the background through the covenants yesterday and asked a lot of questions about what are, have you ever wondered about the imprecatory Psalms when David prayed such curses on his enemies? Have you ever wondered about, you know, lots of things. And we saw how the reason that the New Testament writers could go into the book of Psalms and say this was a prophecy of Christ, and yet it was written about David, was because David was a type of Christ. And furthermore, David knew when he's writing, using the first person pronoun I and my, in Psalm 16, he knew Peter said that he was writing about Christ, and he knew he's writing about Christ's resurrection. When he said, you will not leave my soul in the grave, neither allow your Holy One to see corruption, David knew full well, Peter said, that he was writing about Christ and his resurrection, yet he referred to Christ as I in that psalm. And so we see that when David wrote about himself in the psalms, he was writing about Christ. And under the authority of the New Testament writers, they understood that because they wrote and quoted that and said, this is a prophecy of Christ. So Psalm 1 and 2, how many books does a book of Psalms consist of? Just call it out. Five. What's the first book? Which chapters? 1 through 41. Second book. If you have a print Bible, <coughs> electronic Bibles tend not to have it, but a print Bible, you're going to see book 1 on the top of Psalm 1. Book 2 on the top of Psalm 43. It's Psalm 43 through what? Uh, Psalm 42, I'm sorry. Psalm 42 through, through 72. 73 through what is book 3? 
89. 89 is the end of book 3. 90 is the beginning of book 4. Book 4, chapters 90 through what? 106. Book 5, chapters 107 to the end. 150. The Hebrew Psalms were divided into those five books. And that's reflected even in our prints today. What's the first book about? What's the main theme of the first book? We have to know this if we want to understand what these books are, what the chapters within these books are saying. The theme is the king, and by extension, the Messiah. It's introducing us to a king, a man, who is referred to as David over and over, but is actually, in reality, a prophecy of Christ. The second book. What's it about? And I told you yesterday, that's my weakest yet. I still have to work through that some more. But there's a lot in there about their failure to keep the covenant because of unregenerate hearts. The third book is the tension going on. The third book is when they are in the land of their captivity now. And they are (coughs) singing songs. And you say, I thought these songs were written before the captivity. Some of them were. These psalms were written prophetically for that time period. So they're singing psalms of, Lord, what happened? You said you're going to be faithful to your covenant, but here we are. What happened? We broke the covenant. You were angry with us. You led us into captivity. Yeah, we may have deserved it, but just because we deserved it doesn't mean you have to break your promises. Made to Abraham, uh, made to David, the Davidic covenant. And they're wrestling through that tension of what happened in that book. And that tension comes to a climax in chapter 89, the end, where it is the most clearly expressed. The fourth book, chapters 90 through 106, is they are still in the land of their captivity, and the king has reappeared. The king comes back in, reappears, and begins to walk through the land redeeming a people for himself, choosing a remnant from among them. And suddenly, as a king is there, we find the Psalms leading up to, the people are breaking forth into singing because they're redeemed. And finally, the fifth book is, they are no longer in the land of their captivity, neither are they back at Jerusalem yet, but they are marching back to Jerusalem. And the fifth book from 107 through 150 is written in the context of them walking on the road from the land of their captivity back to Jerusalem. That's where I will lift up mine eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord. Think of it as them walking on the hills between Jerusalem, between the land of their captivity and Jerusalem. Those hills, are they the hills of Jerusalem? The hill of the Lord, where the help's coming from? Or are they looking around the wild hills and country around them from which danger is coming from and saying, my Lord is going to help me in this danger? I don't know. But do you see how it sheds light on what's going on? Now let's turn to chapters 1 and 2. 1 and 2, the book of Psalms is called the Psalter. The five books of the Psalter. P-S-A-L-T-E-R. You can see the idea of Psalms in there. It's their hymn book. Chapters 1 and 2 are considered the gateway to the Psalter. They are a clear introduction to the king. Chapters 1 and 2 are probably the only chapters in the first book, the first 41 chapters that are not a prayer. No praying is taking place. 
They also do not have a title. They're just, here you go. I'm going to present something to you. And it begins this way. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he does meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of waters, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Let's go to chapter 2. Originally chapters 1 and one and 2 were the same chapter in Hebrew. And it's been divided since. So we keep right on reading into chapter 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands in asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for, <coughs> for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. What singular idea does chapter 2 end with? Anybody? Blessed. What does the first verse of chapter 1 begin with? Blessed. It's one unit of thought. Chapters 1 and 2. Beginning with blessed is a man. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. It ends. So it is teaching us how to be blessed. Let's look at the first chapter again. As you'll remember, the first 41 chapters of Psalms are the first book of the Psalter. Their theme is an introduction to the king and a call to serve the king. The man, this man, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, is a special man. Who are we in Psalm 1? Ask yourself that question. Hold that question in the back of your mind and say, where do we come in in Psalm 1? Is this saying you and me and our friends will be blessed if we do not walk in the counsel of the ungodly? Is this giving us advice on how to live a blessed life. This man 
who is blessed is blessed for a reason. The Hebrew word not, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, is a word that means this. Blessed is the man who never has, never does, never will walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Never has, never does, never will sit in the seat of the scornful. Never has, never does, never will stand in the way of sinners. Always meditates in the law of God. Always flourishes like a tree. Blessed is that man. We come to that and we look at that and say, wow, God pronounces a blessing on us if we do that. Does that sound a little bit like the Mosaic covenant where God said, you'll be blessed You'll live and have eternal life if you do this without ever failing? Yes. What are we meant to see in here? We're meant to see no matter how hard I have worked, I cannot honestly say I never have, never do, and never will do these things. We're meant to see ourselves as somebody that doesn't fit this picture. If we were to fit the picture, we would have this blessing. So we're not experiencing this blessing because we don't fit this picture. Who fits this picture? Christ. Christ is the only one who never has, never does, never will. It is introducing us to Christ. Look at Christ. Look at the son who never has, never does, never will. He always delights in the law of the Lord. In his law, he always meditates both day and night. Behold, the man is saying, who is as healthy and as thriving as a tree planted by rivers of living water. Behold, the man whose fruit never withers and whatsoever he does always prospers. In other words, this is saying, behold, your king. Jesus. This is not you and me in these first verses. This is one special, unique man that he's introducing us to. This man is not just any generic man. It's a special kind of man. He is unlike all other men who count among the ungodly whose lives cannot match the life of this man. Who are we in this psalm? The ungodly who are not so, who are like the chaff that the wind drives away. That's where you and I find ourselves in this psalm, not the first part. Though if we had kept that first part, we would find ourselves there. But that's not the point. The point is to introduce us to a man that we need. The second chapter brings out who this man is, the son, son of God. Do you see, we can approach this chapter as moralism and say, listen, You must live this way. And God would be pleased. But ultimately, the greater thing, when we see the gospel in it, is we come to this chapter and say, I can't say that fits me. I need a savior. And that's the point of this chapter. To see ourselves as the ungodly who are not like the man who never has, never does, never will. And we look at this psalm, we say, I am skunked unless I have a savior. I will never make it. 
Because if that is that what it takes to be blessed, then I'm cursed. And there, the purpose of the psalm has been accomplished in our lives, if we see it that way. Because these other men, the ungodly, you and me, are not like that, we stand no chance on judgment day. The ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. Now it keeps right on going, and it's going to expand and tell us about this man in chapter 2. Remember, this was originally one unit. Why do the heathen rage, the ungodly, you and me? Why do we rage? Why do we imagine a vain thing? (coughs) Why do our rulers, our kings of the earth, set themselves? The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, this special God-man that we've read about. Saying, let us break their bands asunder. Let cast their cords away from us. No, God, we don't want you. No, king, we don't want you. Get away from us. Why do we do that? He, God, who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have you and I in derision. If that's what we decide to do. If we're not going to embrace this king and, and fight against him. Judges 5 verse 20 says, the stars in their courses fought against Sisera. Sisera was a man that fought against the children of Israel and by extension against God. Listen, when we fight against this man, this holy one, the stars in their courses will fight against us. And if you set yourself up against the whole the heavenly bodies in their courses, guess who's going to win? It's not going to be you and me. We're going to win that. There is no winning for people who set themselves against this king that we're being introduced to. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. But God will laugh at these ungodly men, at you and me, who have turned against this man, Christ. All who are not at peace with this one man, this God-man, will experience the sore displeasure of God. Salvation is needed because we are under wrath. Romans 1, the wrath of God is why the gospel is needed, it says. God is, does get angry, but he loves. So he makes a way of escaping from that anger. He is, loves every one of us here today. His heart is full of love. But if we're going to spurn that and turn against him and refuse his salvation, there's nothing left for us but his wrath. Yet have I set my holy king upon my holy, my king upon my holy hill of Zion. So they're saying, all right, we're not, we're not going to um, serve God. We're not going to recognize him as king of our lives. Makes no difference, God's saying. God's saying, I am going to set him on the throne. Zion, you can't stop the rise of this king. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. The ungodly cannot thwart God's decree, which is that he will reign. God decreed that this man would be his heir. All power and all glory and all honor would go to this man who is blessed because he never has, never does, never will do ungodly deeds. And you and I and our ungodly people are not going to stop that from happening. Ask of me, God is telling the son, Jesus, this man, 
And I will give you the heathen for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. God asked this man, the son, the heir, to simply ask of the father, and he would give all these ungodly people to this God-man, the son, for an inheritance. Sounds like Ephesians 4. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Look at that, quoting Psalm 68. You know what's going on? Same thing's going on here. God goes into the enemy. When this king rises to his throne, he sets himself in battle against Satan, the one who captured our souls, goes in there and defeats Satan, as we talked about that David did with the Amalekites, takes the spoils of war, the treasure of the enemy, which is you and me, and gives them to Christ and back to the church. That's what's going on here. Ask of me, son, God, man, I will give you the heathen for your inheritance. Nobody's going to stop me. I will fulfill the promise I made to Abraham to redeem a people for myself. And all the kings of the earth raging against me are not going to stop me from building my church and redeeming a people and giving them to this God, man, as an inheritance. Then he says, you, talking about the son, shall break them. These people who rebelled against them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The man who never has, never does, and never will do evil (coughs) will be in a position as a king sitting on his throne to break the ungodly and their nations and kingdoms with a rod of iron and to dash them in pieces. Now, we read from Revelation chapter 2 yesterday in the beginning, and we didn't get that far. And this is where this comes in. If the ungodly in Psalm 1 will not stand in the congregation of the righteous, then why am I saying that the righteous one talking uh, is talking about the righteous one with a capital O? Why am I saying that the righteous one in chapter 1 is talking about a single man, Jesus Christ? But later it says the congregation of the righteous. In the same unit of thought. Do you understand my question? How, why, if it's a congregation, why is it a single man? Here's why. Revelation 2 that we read. Yesterday. Oh. Revelation chapter 2, it says this in verse 24. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, (laughs) as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. Who is ruling with a rod of iron and, and, and smiting the enemies of the Lord to shivers in Revelation chapter 2. He that overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him will I give authority over nations, and you and I will take a rod of iron and strike the nations in and, and, uh, and shivers, even as was promised to the Son. Jesus is speaking here. And he is quoting Psalm chapter 2. And he is saying, my saints, those who are reconciled with me, are going to come to the judgment day. 
They're going to stand beside me on the day of judgment, become a congregation of righteous people there, and I'm going to hand them my rod of iron to smite the nations, dash them in pieces. That's where the congregation comes in. Is that the same congregation it's talking about in Psalm 2? I believe so. Why do I say so? Do you remember Hebrew poetry, the parallelism, contrasting lines, or lines that don't contrast but say the same thing? That's what's going on here. Verse Chapter 1, verse 5 says this, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. Then it has a line that repeats that in a different way. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Sinners in the congregation of the righteous is restating ungodly on the day of judgment. The ungodly won't stand in the judgment. Sinners, congregation of the righteous. The judgment is being administered by the congregation of the righteous in Psalm 1. Do you see that in Revelation 2? It's talking about the day of judgment. The congregation is standing there with this one man, and this one man says, judgment. Do you see how those tie together? So, verse 10. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. All right, so we're cursed. We're the ungodly who are not so. No hope for us. We are not reconciled with him. We're not that way. Therefore, he has the blessing. We have the curses. And might as well fight against him because at the end, we're doomed anyway. Let's see if we can't conquer him. Is this a hopeless message up to this point? Seems like it. Suddenly it brings in the gospel in this. Yes, you and I are the ungodly who are not like this blessed man in chapter 1. What does it tell us? You want to be wise. If you and I want to be wise today, it's telling us if we want to be instructed Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Fear God and tremblingly realize there's reason to rejoice. Kiss the son. What does that word kiss mean? That word kiss is used in the Bible in the context of acknowledging somebody's kingship. See, when Job says, if I have looked on the sun when it's shone, if I have looked at the moon in its brightness, if I have kissed my hand, what's going on? If I looked at the sun as a God, if I looked at the moon as a God, and if I looked at myself as a God, you, you, kiss the king, you kiss the ring or the hand of a king if you wanted to acknowledge him as king. And so Job's saying, if I kissed my hand, if I considered myself my own master, then, and he pronounced judgment that could come to him, kiss him, acknowledge this son as your king. Lest he, the son, be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Because this man will destroy all the ungodly, then the ungodly are being called to be reconciled to him. They are to kiss him as people do a king to pay homage to that king. For all who oppose the rule and kingdom and throne of this man, the son, the king, they will be broken to pieces and dashed as a potter's vessel, and God will allow the congregation of those who are reconciled with him to do it. 
These first two psalms, like I said, are an introduction to the king and to all others, the ungodly. They warn about the kingdom of this God-man and ask the nations to take the hour of opportunity to be reconciled to him before they are torn to pieces. I asked you yesterday, why the imprecatory psalms? Why these psalms that David prays such curses against his enemies? And you say, how could you, David, they came against you and you're asking God to knock their teeth out, to kill them, to cut them apart, dash them to pieces. What's going on, David? Why do you pray that way? Remember, the throne of David was the throne of Christ. To whom was this curse of dashing them to pieces in Psalm 2 promised? To all who oppose his throne. When people oppose David's throne, they're opposing Christ's throne. And when David wrote these imprecatory psalms, it wasn't merely his own emotional feelings at what had happened to him. But the Spirit of God came on him and moved him to write things that God is going to do to the nations who come against this God-man's throne. And by coming against David's throne, they were attacking the Messiah. And he, these imprecatory psalms are being written by, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to describe just how he is going to break them to pieces. With a, like a potter's vessel is broken to shivers. Do you understand? It's not David's personal emotional feelings of vindictiveness, but it is the Holy Spirit and God's feelings coming on him as, listen, you're attacking the throne of David. Therefore, you're attacking the throne of Christ. I told you I'm going to tear you to pieces if you do that in Psalm 2 and you're not reconciled to me. Well, that's what's going to happen. And I'm moving David to write what's going to happen. And suddenly we begin to realize the imprecatory psalms are the fulfillment of Psalm 2 for the future. So we're called to be reconciled to him and then blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Suddenly the one man only is blessed. The rest of us are the ungodly who are not cursed. Suddenly if we turn to this man, kiss the son be reconciled to him, be made right with him, what's going to happen? We receive the same blessing that is promised to this man in the beginning of chapter 1 because his righteousness, who never has, never does, never wills, becomes our righteousness, and it is as if we never have, never do, never will. And we are the blessed ones. That's in brief. We could go much deeper in the first two chapters. The rest of the book, of book one, is the king pleading with God to deliver him from his enemies. They speak much of pleading with God for deliverance because of his righteousness. God, I am righteous, therefore deliver him, me. You see, it's not David talking about his own righteousness, but prophesying about the greater David's perfect righteousness. Deliver me, Lord, from the enemies. It's the Messiah praying to be delivered from his enemies because he is righteous. And the, and the Messiah was righteous. There are only a few chapters where his sin is mentioned in the first 41 chapters. They are all after chapter 22 when he took on himself this, the sin of man and was crucified for it in Psalm 22. The cry to be merciful to him with his sin is found in chapter 38. In the middle of verses that speak prophetically of Christ standing before Pilate. 
It's a prophecy of Christ standing before Pilate and saying, deliver me from my sins. Be merciful to me for my sins. What's going on? I think it is prophetically speaking of the sins of mankind that Christ took on himself as he's standing in judgment before Pilate, ready to be crucified for the sins of man, saying, God, be merciful. And so ends the book of the Psalter, whose theme is, Behold your king. The second book, Psalm 50, God is testifying against Israel. Psalm 51, David is pleading for a clean heart, a heart not made right with God, that a heart that would be made right with God. Psalm 58, the king is praying against the wicked who work wickedness in their hearts. Their hearts are not right. It is an imprecatory psalm. Many of the chapters in, in this section are the king praying against evil enemies trying to destroy him because of evil hearts. They show a people who would not submit to their king, therefore the king carries terrible curses on them because they refuse to be reconciled and they refuse his love and are rejecting him. This section shows a conflict between the king and unregenerate man. <clears throat> now we come to the third section. The third book. This section, chapters 73 through 89, <coughs> speaks to the time period where Israel is in the land of their captivity, the Assyrians. Then later, the Babylonians carried them captive. Israel was in a land where they had ceased to exist as a nation, and they were troubled. How could they be in such a condition when God's covenant with them through David was as certain as the holiness of God? They were singing songs that depicted this perplexity. Chapter 74 bewails them. They're saying, God, you've cast us off. What happened? You can read through 74. Oh, God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your, uh, your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Here we are in the land of our captivity. Why did you reject us as a nation when you promised we'd stand forever? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, the rod of your inheritance, which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion wherein thou hast dwelt. Lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations, even all that the enemy has done wickedly in the sanctuary. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. It's just full of reminding God of where they were. Chapter 77. Will the Lord cast off forever? Will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Does his promise fail forevermore? You see what's going on, that tension? What happened to your promises, God? Here we are, land of captivity. Your promises are null, void, or so we think they are. Chapter 85. Turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you draw out your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Look where we are, God. My mercy, Psalm 89. Here is the last chapter of this section. Look at what this says. My mercy will I keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also, they're reminding God of his promise to David. His seed also will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that is gone out of my mouth. Once have I sworn by my holiness that 
I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven, Selah. God, remember that, but you promised David in 2 Samuel 7, but you have cast off, you have abhorred, you have been wroth with your anointed. You have made void the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. That's the tension of the third book. And so we have Israel cursed. We have Israel, the tree, cut off down to the stump, ceasing to exist as a nation. But God was going to keep this covenant. Israel knew not how. Now begins the fourth book, chapters 90 through 106. In this section, Israel is still in the land of their captivity. But suddenly the king appears. He comes into the land to redeem a people for himself. And thus we begin with chapter 90. They are still in the land of their captivity. They are beginning to sound more hopeful in this chapter. They are asking God to show them mercy. And the chapter ends with this. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish all the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish upon us. Do you see the hope that's starting to come into their heart? Because the Savior has come to them in the land of their captivity. And hope is beginning to rise up. Then chapter 91. Though Israel is in the midst of violence and heathenism, yet the king is offering a safe place of refuge for those who dwell in the secret place of the Most High, God himself. No security in the temple. No security in the Ark of the Tabernacle. No security in the old system. Where was their security? He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. They're out there alone from all forms of their religion, all they ever held security to. They had nothing but God himself. And God said, look, you're out here without anything you got under Moses. I'm offering you redemption. Find refuge in me, myself. Come to me. Put your trust in me. And you'll be protected in the land of your captivity. Does that sound like the gospel today, that it doesn't take a particular place anymore? We can be in the most vile, heathen land and find our refuge and security and eternal life in Christ himself, in God himself. Chapter 92. In this chapter, the king is speaking. He is expressing confidence in God that he will overcome. He will triumph. It is his mission to rescue the people from the enemy. His horn is exalted. He is the anointed one who will see his enemies destroyed and will cause the righteous to flourish. Chapter 93, the Lord, the king, is going to reign. Therefore, the earth will be stable. Chapter 94, the king is preparing to rescue his people from the land of their captivity. But the day of their salvation is also a terrible day for the foes. The return of the king will be a day of both joy and terror. What happened to Israel is what's ultimately going to happen to the whole earth at his second return. So this is the king coming in prophetically to them and rescuing them in the land of their captivity, bringing salvation to them. And it's also picturing what's going to happen worldwide when he comes back at his second coming. <clears throat> and that's 94. That's what 94 is about. 95. So far in the fourth book. We have seen a single man talking. He is talking of the salvation that he was going to bring. 
But now from chapter 95 and on through at least chapter 106, we have the people singing. In this chapter, we have the voice of song coming from those who have been redeemed. God is calling his people in the day of grace. He is pleading with them not to harden their hearts. I'm coming. I'm offering you refuge in God himself. Don't harden your heart. Today is a day of salvation. It's not for nothing that the Hebrew writer quotes this passage as a day of grace is what he's talking about today. Today is a day of grace, salvation by Christ. Don't harden your heart against this Christ. And this is speaking. Israel, I'm giving you a chance to redeem you in the land of your captivity. Don't harden your heart. It's a day of grace. The Hebrew writer picks on it and says, we're living in that day of grace. Let's not harden our hearts. Psalm 96. Here in Psalm 96, it says, the earth also shall be established that it be not moved. What's that mean? Remember the vivid imagery I talked to you about earlier, how Psalms use this vivid imagery? If you will read that verse, the earth also shall be established, you will read this also in Chronicles somewhere, I believe it is, where it uses the word stable, the earth also shall be stable. And earlier, a few chapters before this, it uses stable that it be not moved. What's going on? Read the rest of the verse. It says because of God's righteous judgment that he has brought in. So God brought righteousness to the land of their captivity, and the earth is stable and not moving as a result. Isaiah 24 was written for this same time period. 24 through 27 in Isaiah are written for the time period when Israel was in exile. Isaiah 24 tells us this. Because of the unrighteous judgment of Israel, God is judging the earth as a result of him bringing wrath on the earth. The earth is reeling and staggering like a drunkard. The earth is greatly moved, it says in Isaiah 24. It's picturing God punishing the inhabitants of the earth and the earth for their sin. And it's like a drunken man reeling and staggering and greatly moved and trying to get away from his wrath. That's the picture in Isaiah 24. It's not for nothing that Isaiah 24 was written for the same time period as chapter 96. Isaiah 24, this is happening. The reeling and staggering and great moving is happening because of unrighteous judgment. But suddenly in the same setting, the same scene, the king steps in and brings his righteousness to the people. And the result is what? Suddenly the earth is at rest, stable, not moved. Peace through him. Beautiful picture. I'm not going to read Isaiah 24, but you can read it on your own and just look at it. Psalm 102. <coughs> this shall be written, <coughs> written for the generation to come, and the people which shall be created shall praise the Lord. For he hath looked down from the height of his sanctuary. From heaven did he, the Lord behold the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to loose those that are appointed to death. That's what's going on in this book. He looked down the prisoner, those bound by sin, and he's reaching down and delivering them. In their place, he didn't take them back to Jerusalem to deliver them. Right where they are, today God will meet you right where you are. You're in shackles, you're in prison of your sin. He'll meet you right where you are and give you a place of refuge in him. 
the rest of this section is Israel praising and thanking the Lord for remembering them and his covenant, even in the land of their captivity. And now we come to the last book of the Psalms, chapters 107 through 150. Israel has now been redeemed. They are not yet in their home country, but they have left their captive country and are en route to Jerusalem. It begins with this in chapter 107. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, who he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered them out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and the south. Does that suddenly make sense when you see where they were? They had left the land of their captivity, were walking, marching back to Jerusalem and saying, he's redeemed us from all corners of the earth. He's redeemed us from the land of our captivity. Give thanks. And that's what they're singing. Chapter 109, we find the judgment of God preyed on the enemies of the king who refused his mercy or his kingdom. Those who hardened their hearts when he called were cursed. The day of redemption for God's people is a day of woe for his enemies. Chapter 120, verse 5 says, Woe is me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. My soul has long dwelt with them that hates peace. What's that saying? That Meshach and the tents of Kedar were the cities of their captivity. Woe is me that I was there. Too long I've lived there. I'm out of there. I'm leaving the world and its folly behind. And I'm going on back home to Bethel, to Jerusalem. To my home country where God is. I have no time to have a foot in the world. And a foot in, in God. I'm leaving one for the other. <clears throat> in conclusion. We have the book of Psalms speaking in this order. The king is perfect. Man is his enemy. Mankind. That's book one. Mankind, book two, turns against the king because of their unregenerate hearts. They refuse to obey him, and so he prays for sustenance as they plot against him. The king, in book three, judges mankind by cursing him, but that judgment is for the sake of showing mercy. Book four, the king appears to man in his helpless state and brings in righteousness. This righteousness causes the earth to stabilize. Book five, the king leads man out from the world, the enemies of the king, and leads them back to his own land. And thus you have the Psalms in the same order as a redemption plan throughout the entire Bible. God, the king, serve him. Well, okay, we'll try to serve him, but we'll fail because our hearts are unregenerate. So God curses mankind. From that cursed position, he comes in and rescues them. From the land, the chains in which they find themselves. And they leave the world behind and march on to God. Beautiful picture of redemption. The book of Psalms is a template of the whole Bible. Of the storyline from Genesis through Revelation. 